sunset means it's time to play rock and roll. You know, it's, it's hard to play rock and roll when the sun's still up. It's a lot easier when the sun goes down. Hey everybody, welcome back to Freepcast. I'm Rob Murray, your host. Freepcast is brought to you by the Free Press Media and recorded at the KMSU Studios on the campus of Minnesota State University in Mankato. My guest today is artist Eric Koskinen, one of the rising stars in the region, in the country and western Americana music scenes. Um, Eric's work history is in the, in the music industry is extensive. He's worked with Dead Man Winter, Trampled by Turtles, The Four on the Floor, Actual Wolf, and many, many more. He's been a regular guest with Mankato's own City Mouse. You can see him perform regularly at various venues in town, including the Nikato, where he just finished up a month-long residency. Is that right? I did, yeah. Okay. Um, he's recorded several LPs and EPs, the latest of which is called Cruising Paradise, which you can pick up at erikoskinen.com. Is that also correct? That is also correct, okay. yeah. Uh, welcome, Eric Koskinen. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming in on a cold morning. Oh, it's not too bad, actually, <coughs> well, compared to what we've had. About 34 degrees warmer than two days ago. That's, morning, that's, so. that's absolutely true. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Eric, you and I sat down a while back for a Mankato Magazine story, and I was intrigued um, by your upbringing, um, your life, the places you've been. So, tell me where you grew up and kind of what um, that was like. I know um, you did tell me you, you began to get into music at a pretty early age. I got into listening to music at a very little a, a young age, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I was born in, I don't know if we talked about this, I was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. Yes. Okay. Um, my parents were going to grad school in Fort Collins at Colorado State. And my first concert was uh, John Denver at Mile High Stadium in Denver, Colorado. Did, did I tell you that? You did. It yeah. sounded like an amazing, I mean, like, I think what I wrote in the in the magazine piece was I can't imagine a, a better first concert. Oh yeah, I mean, come John on. Denver Mile yeah. High Stadium. And then funny funny thing is, is he lived here, he lived in yeah. St. Peter for a while, and his old house was just up for sale last year, I think, the one that's oh on, really yeah okay on the river, kind of back on on the mm-hmm. Casota side of the river kind of thing. Yeah, of course I can't, I couldn't buy it, of course, but you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so. Where were we? Uh, that you know, that was Colorado. That was my first concert. I barely remember it. It's not like a, it's not like it was a huge influence on me. But De- mm-hmm. John Denver got played quite a bit around the around the house, and then um, uh, we moved back. To, we moved. I should say back to Michigan. I was born in Colorado, but the, my parents moved back to Michigan, and I happened to be their kid, so we we followed along with them. You came along for the ride, yeah, and. Uh, they started taking us to music festivals throughout my our childhood with roots music mainly you mm-hmm. know um uh, everything from cajun to balkan music to um bluegrass to so he's like in the michigan area you're talking about festivals yeah okay yeah yeah you know michigan does a pretty good job with their music festivals for some reason i i uh th- I, uh, you know, the bluegrass bands came from Kentucky. They didn't come from Michigan mm-hmm. when they had a bluegrass band. The Cajun band came from Louisiana, not from 
St. Louis. Mm-hmm. You know, the blues guy came from St. Louis, though, you know, or whatever. You know, I mean, right, that's right. so. I when I so I they were all authentic people, unknown authentic people that were were known in circles that obviously at that age I had nothing, I had no knowledge of. But as I got older and started to research places and music and uh, uh, regions that had certain kinds of music, then I started to figure that stuff out. So when you say Michigan, if I recall correctly, is, was it the Houghton, Michigan area where Michigan Tech is? Yeah, but we would travel further south to some festivals and stuff. The, okay. There was no real f- great festival up in that area. Okay. At least, at least had to go 100 miles to Marquette, Okay. Michigan. That's where my parents met in, in Marquette. Okay. Yeah. But my dad had been, um, my dad went to Woodstock and my dad went to the met Johnny Cash at the Newport Folk Festival, and he'd been doing that stuff his 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 for a large part of his adult life, going to these major festivals and seeing. He met Johnny Cash. My dad met Johnny Cash at the Newport Folk Festival. Yeah. Wow. It's a pretty interesting story. His he was with he brought his cousin Larry there, and his cousin Larry was um, <clears throat> physically handicapped, uh, not mentally, but physically, and he and he. He, you know, he couldn't use his legs right. He limped heavy, and his his arms and his hands didn't work right. And he had uh, deformities in his face and all over his body, really. And uh, my dad walked up to Johnny Cash at a at a uh, hot dog vendor. Johnny Cash was getting a hot dog, and he <laughs> said, "Mr. Cash, <laughs> would you like to?" Would you would would you like to? Uh, I I would like to introduce you to my cousin Larry. And Johnny Cash looked perturbed as he turned around. He said, and then he saw this young, um, deformed kid, basically, you know, eighteen year old or whatever, uh, my dad's cousin, and got a big grin on his face and grabbed his hand and said, oh, "It's nice to meet you, son," and and talked to him for a little bit and and uh, was the nicest guy apparently. So what do you make of that story? Because, you know, that could be any of us. Um, we're in a situation where we're having a, you know, we're busy. We have a lot a lot to do. He, I'm, I'm sure he had a lot of people wanting to talk to him at the festival. Oh, yeah. And I here mean, comes some guy, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm sure any of us would have looked, oh, God, really? Another guy talking to me? Yeah, And then he changes sure. his mind when he sees exactly who he wants to talk to. So do you see that as a case of Johnny Cash being a regular guy or kind of a dick who didn't want to say hi first but then he did want to say <laughs> hi i mean how do you view that story now i think the way my dad sort of explained it was that he, i mean he, johnny cash would pretend or at least act like and he it seemed pretty genuine that he sort of fought for the down and outers mm-hmm. you know that was his whole story of wearing black you know, until the world is full of sunshine and a wonderful place for everybody he was going to wear black you know that was his kind of slogan the man in black thing mm-hmm. so it seemed it's my dad said it seems pretty genuine like he was pretty perturbed that he had somebody was bothering him again but he was also pretty genuine to make this kid's day you know that's pretty cool that's what it seemed like yeah so did your dad meet people like this often? I mean, did he... Well, he said he met Johnny Cash twice. He met Johnny okay. Cash in the urinal at one of his <laughs> concerts as well. Peen. I think they nodded. That was pretty much it. My dad didn't want to bother him while he was peeing. So. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any stories of peeing next to famous people? Um, 
My dad tells a story you know, of going I, to the Carlton Celebrity Room in Bloomington and peeing next to one of the Gatlin brothers. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Way back in the day. I'm not... Uh, I have lots of weird... I have memories... I mean, I've been in green rooms with quite a... You know, I mean, I've opened for a lot of famous mm. people. Um, you probably didn't think you were going to get asked about who you've peed next to on this yeah. podcast. No, that's fine. That's a better question than <laughs> some. I, I, one guy I never talked to um, was um, um, oh, my memory. My memory. Um, what's his name? ZZ Top stood next to him. Okay. Um, um, I'm punching the table. Is this one of the beard guys or the other guy? It's the main dude. Okay. Um, what's it? Oh, come on. I don't uh, know. His Billy name. Gibbons. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was standing on the stage in front of me and he was still shorter than me. He was in a little club. I mean, he's, okay. all these, these guys are, all the stars are, are like, you know, four foot 11 mm-hmm. kind of a thing. <laughs> That's one memory you always have about standing next to famous people is most of them are shorter than you yeah i suppose they are yeah i'm not um i mean pull you back here a little bit yeah sorry we're getting track. That's, we're that's, getting off track is that a, is that a, that's not yeah. a, like a i'm not like gonna get in trouble for making fun of short people or anything like that right? uh yeah. no yeah, no I mean, but as a short person i'm deeply offended by everything <laughs> okay. you just said I'm just kidding <laughs> just kidding um so um one thing that intrigued me about our previous conversation, I hate to keep saying our previous conversation, but um, you did tell me that you spent some time like going from your, was it your dad who lived in New York or your My mom? mom lived in New York. My dad lived in Michigan. And you went back and forth uh, pretty frequently. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about that and what kind of impact that, that that had on, on your life and your music. Well, I think that had a pretty big impact because I was, I was, you know, I was, before we moved to um, New York, we were kind of we lived out in the woods. We built a log house by hand. You know, the, we had horses that log, that skidded the trees out of the woods, so we didn't have equipment wreck our Jeez. property. You know, uh-huh. and we peeled them with draw knives, and we and we we built a house by hand out in the middle of the woods as kids. I mean, you know, we ran around and played you know, cowboys and Indians and stuff half the time. Yeah. But we were put to work generally okay. quite a bit. We dug the foundation with shovels. You know, I mean, that kind of a thing. It was, looking back on it now, it was, it seemed normal to us as kids, even though we didn't really know anybody else who did that. But we, um, but look, thinking about it now, it's a ridiculous idea of, of people trying to uh, live almost like it was a hundred years ago or something like that. Um, was this in Michigan? This was in the great north woods of the UP of Michigan, yes. Okay. Far out, far away from anybody. And was that a, so this was like the family house? This was guys? the family house. So then my, you know, my parents got divorced and uh, that was gone. <laughs> basically went away. Okay. And my mom got a job teaching English at a college in northern New York. Okay. And it, it, a town called Plattsburgh, New York. It's not a big town, but it was close to Montreal. It's close to Burlington, Vermont, and it's not that far north of. I mean, it's a few, a couple hours north of Albany, New York. And okay. It's a straight line between Albany and and Montreal, and it's twenty miles from the Canadian border. So it was kind of a 
it was a completely different kind of town than mm-hmm. any place we had ever been before as kids. And so we went from being out in the woods um, with one TV channel and and a, and you know a couple of radio stations. Other than the you know we had records, we had uh, festivals that we went to and concerts and all that kind of stuff. And I was in like, school band and whatever. But um, all of a sudden we went to this town that was up to date <laughs> with society <laughs> and the first two kids i met were uh smoking weed underneath the railroad track bridge and i didn't even know what that was i, didn't, I mean i knew what marijuana was but i didn't know that pot and marijuana weren't the same thing i mean we were naive kids that lived down the woods we didn't know anything and all of a sudden i'm in this town where there's a bunch of drugs and and um music you know 19 that was 1992 so a lot of things were happening there was there was dr dre's big record was coming out and uh, snoop dogg's big record was coming out and nirvana's big thing was coming out and the, the grunge music scene and uh hair metal was going away and uh, uh you know there was all this crazy stuff and all at the same time when we left my dad gave me his guitar that he barely ever played but he had a guitar and I needed something to do in this new town other than smoke weed so I started to <laughs> started to play guitar and I met other musicians and you know had an actual garage band we had a we had a garage in New York and we had and we went and played in the garage and you know opened the door literal garage band we had a garage band yeah so did you take pretty quickly to the guitar? I, mean, I did, did, yeah. That to okay. Yeah. I mean, I started playing it when I was, was I 12 or 13, uh, something like that. And I kind of never stopped playing it until I, until I got a job after I graduated from high school. I mean, I had jobs in high school, plenty of them. But I, when I had to actually pay bills after high school, then I, you know, I would. But I pretty much held on to my guitar for entire high school. So as a... 12, 13-year-old Eric Koskinen, you know, when we're kids, we all try to pretend we're a rock star of some kind. Who mm-hmm. who were the guys you pretended to be when you were playing that guitar at age 13? Or, or wanted to be like Yeah. Or, well, I had um, always a Bob Dylan fan, mm-hmm. but that wasn't necessarily who I was trying to emulate by any means uh but that was a he was a big influence of course i mean anybody trying to write songs and be a guitar player they're not listening to woody guthrie bob dylan johnny cash tom petty you know all of the great american songwriters chuck berry i listened to nonstop for a Mm. while um but i had this connection because of these music festivals in michigan a lot of these music festivals, the music festivals in Michigan would have Minnesota artists in, in them. Um, so I had this reissue album of the first Kerner Ray and Glover record, which was Spider John Kerner from Minneapolis and Dave Snaker Ray and Tony Glover, who um, was a big deal in the mu- Minneapolis music scene in the 60s and 70s. And, and uh, so I had their record, and that was, and they were playing black music blues music and so that's what i started i started to play i learned all the songs on that record okay and um but you know at the same time i was uh 
I was uh, I was hanging out with I always hung out with the <laughs> the losers and the stoners and the musicians. You know the guys. Those are the most interesting people. Those are the, yeah, and um, most a bunch of those guys they played heavy metal music, and one of them in particular walked around with a guitar that had a battery pack in it and a speaker on the front of it and he would play Megadeth songs all day long walking around stoned with his head banging and stuff like that and he was one of my best friends he went to prison for a while and and uh got into a bunch of trouble and had a really crappy upbringing and stuff mm-hmm. but he I, I got along I understood him you know yeah so I, you know, I, that was the same. I think Metallica had their big hit record the year I moved there. So I was learning how to play Enter Sandman, and, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> the Black record was it was called. I think. So could you play that song today if you had to? <clears throat> no, no, not at all. It's been got twenty five years since I've tried to play any of that stuff. I mm-hmm. think. Um, you know, I remember. I think the first thing I remember really playing was the beginning of one of those songs the very beginning of one of those metallica songs and mm-hmm. i can still play it but it was a picking thing that was essentially a lullaby kind of a th- you know the easiest um, possible guitar part you could imagine mm-hmm. was the intro to the song and it was a big hit i can't even remember the name of the song but it was one of those was that their song one <clears throat> Is there a song called One? I feel like there's something called It's something like that. Yeah, it's a slow, it's kind of like their, you know, ballad. Yeah, okay. I think yeah. it's called One. Yeah. Um, so um, at some Nothing point- Nothing really matters? Uh, oh, the uh, fans are going to be so mad at- Yeah, anybody who's in the music is going to be like, these two idiots. <laughs> yeah, they're they're these guys song. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Billy who? <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, yeah, go ahead. So at, at, at some point in your career, I know you kind of, You've moved around quite a bit, but at some point you did make your way to Minnesota. Talk a little bit about why you came to Minnesota. Um, and um, well, let's I mean, go did back. You think it was a good place to live as a musician. Yeah, or? yeah. So let's go back to. We never finished the going because I started going off on on tangents about stuff. So then I forget where we were talking about, but the going back from New York to Michigan thing. Oh yeah. yeah. So then I was in New York, you know, playing with my buddy stoners and losers and, you know, and I, and some other people too. Um, But they were kind of the mainstay. You know, one of them like stole my chainsaw. You know, we played in the garage and (laughs) rock band, you know, the, the, we had our garage band and he saw his chainsaw and the next day he skipped school and then, Stole my chainsaw and sold it for a bag of weed. You can't steal a guy's chainsaw. Well, not when you're in the same (laughs) band with him. I mean, give me a break. No wonder he went to jail. Anyway, so then I went back to Michigan. I was tired of being in New York. So I went back to Michigan. And we'd go back, you know, back and forth. But this was like, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go move back to Michigan and stay with my dad. And I went, this crazy thing happened. I met this guy. I was playing in this little coffee house and I met this guy who had just moved there to hang out with his dad, and he was a L.A. touring and session musician who was experienced and was in... He was the rhythm guitar player in David Lindley's El Rayo X band, which was the music, musician's musician band of L.A. in the 80s. That's where Tom Petty went and watched him, and Bob Dylan went and watched him. And, uh, it was, David Lindley was Jackson Brown's steel guitar player. Uh, 
So and he, he had just gotten off the road with Melissa Etheridge. And his dad retired from L.A. working for Ford. And then he moved up to, he married this woman, and they moved up into the middle of the woods up in, up in the UP of Michigan. So, he, so Bernie Larson was his name, the guitar player, musician. He had a little small studio. And back then, that's a tape machine and a console and, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's pretty big, actually. But he decided he wanted to hang out with his dad and get out of L.A. And so he bought a house out in the woods and put a studio in the barn. And he saw me playing and said, you should come out to my place and record some music. And I started, and he had a little, he built a little club in, in, in Houghton, Michigan. And this music scene happened all of a sudden. All these musicians from that were college students at Michigan Tech who were from Detroit and Chicago and um, weird people who were from South America and weird, you know, weird, cool people from South America and uh, all these different kind of people all of a sudden were in this town playing at this venue that was put on by this guy from L.A. who was an experienced musician, you know, and it was huge. I was learning from a worldly musician who played original music and recorded and produced original music. It wasn't the local bar band scene, which could have been what I had fallen into right right if i didn't fall into this you know and though i was already trying to do my own thing this guy bernie larson just sort of pushed that do your thing do your thing and i wasn't really good at playing other people's songs anyway so then we get to um <coughs> this this uh, little group of people are playing music around michigan and then we get a guy named Jordan Gruno in Ashland, Wisconsin says, hey, there's these guys and I'm sort of booking these places. You guys should play at this venue in Duluth, Minnesota. Because he knew he was right in the center between Duluth and Houghton, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden we started playing. My first gig, I think I was 17, was at Fitker's Brewhouse in Duluth, Minnesota. My first oh, gig. I love Fitgers. The fish tacos. Yeah. We had a fish and for. chips, man. Too, yeah. uh, but that was the first place that I drove, like, I'm going on tour. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was 17, and you could still smoke in Fitgers at the time, and you could, you had to bring your own PA system, and uh, I just, then I got a, another gig that was in Bayfield, and from the same guy, and a, a gig in uh, Ironwood, Michigan by the same guy. So then all of a sudden I started traveling to Minnesota and Minnesota seemed so much more accessible than downstate Michigan because it took five hours to get to the Mackinac Bridge, which gets you into lower Michigan. And then it's another four and a half hours to Detroit from there. You know, so it's, you know, and if the weather was bad, which it often is, it's a 12 hour drive to Detroit or a ten, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. And it's six and a half hours to Minneapolis it's oh. four hours to Duluth. It's f- six hours to Milwaukee. It's it's you know it's much more accessible. So mm-hmm. Lower Michigan, even though I would go down there and play sometimes, was was not an easy place to really get to if nobody knew who you were. Yeah. That Mac the Mackinac Bridge is five miles long, but might as well have well been the Atlantic Ocean. I yeah. guess. Yeah. So that's how the Minnesota thing started. And then I started meeting a bunch of people in Minnesota. 
after I had, I mean, I had moved to Nashville and then Burlington, Vermont and California and uh, back to Michigan every single time. But that would, I was keep on this, keeping my footing in Minnesota and yeah. Wisconsin and Northern Michigan. And then, okay. then I ended up moving straight to Minneapolis eventually. So as you were growing up and developing as a musician, ha- had you heard about Minneapolis as a place that's a, I did, kind of a and hotbed the, of music? I did. And the reason why, like I was saying earlier, is when I was in New York, I had um, uh, this Kerner Ray and Glover album, mm-hmm. which was famous for the, the, you know, the scene, the music scene on the West Bank. And uh, my dad talked about it a lot. Okay. Because my dad knew about it. And um, also, at the same time I had that record, for some reason, I can't remember where I got it, but I had this record by a band called Bash and Pop, which was Tommy Stinson's band, which was a Minneapolis band. And it was a pretty great record, and I knew it was from Minneapolis, and that was pretty much it. And At this time, was your style, I mean, the style we hear now from your music, was it, you know, country? Yeah, uh... There was more blues in it, you know, okay. um, but I still play blues music. I don't, I don't feel like I don't. I feel like I feel like the country thing started to come out as I was seeing just more of more of that music as I got older and listening to more of it. I mean, all of a sudden you put on a Hank Williams record and Hank Williams just played blues music. He was the king of country music, but he played blue, he learned how to play guitar from a old black bluesman and and Lovesick Blues was his song. I mean, it's as blues music as blues music gets, but it also was the was country music. And people not seeing how those two are the same thing uh, always made me wonder what what if you know if you if you listen to the early Hank Williams, it's 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 also interesting. What's so interesting about the Hank Williams stuff is the slide guitar, which was a big deal on those Hank Williams records was a Hawaiian tuning. It was a Hawaiian sound. And so the st- he was playing blues music with a country s- flavor to it with Hawaiian That's steel. a good point. Um, there's <laughs> that song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. That's got, now that you mentioned that, it, that does sound very Hawaiian. That's that's what it is. It's a Hawaiian tuning. It's, it's yeah. called the C6 tuning, and that yeah. is where that came from. And it's, it's, uh, it's a big... It's a big deal. And then, you know, like I said, he learned how to play blues music. That's how he grew up in the South, playing black guitar. So you came to Minneapolis. Um, tell me about, how, I mean, was it was it difficult to, to sort of make your name known and, and to, you know, get no, gigs here? No, I was pretty lucky. Uh, I kind of came there. Before I moved to Minneapolis, I had been playing in Minnesota so much. I had already played in Minneapolis a bunch, and I met this girl musician named Molly Mayer mm-hmm. and she asked me to come down and do a couple sessions with her and she knew everybody in town so it was I started meeting people right away and then uh, I came down and did a show with her before I was going on a tour uh, to the west coast and back with these guys that were most of them were from Minneapolis uh, not all of them but some of them and so I was in town rehearsing and then I played a gig with Molly at the turf club and her backing band was some of the guys that i became my backing band and they were so good exactly what i wanted to hear that i wasn't getting out of a band anywhere else 
so I said, I think I have to move here and, and play and play with these guys, and that's what happened. And uh, so then we got a we got we got a weekly gig right when I moved there. I so, was just going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. So Molly Molly did one set and I did the other set, but we were the same band. Everybody just stayed on stage, but mm-hmm. and um, and then Paul, the guitar player, Paul Burgeon, he would do the last half an hour and it was pretty ruckus you know i'm sure a lot of whiskey and stuff had been flying around the room by that point <laughs> so you know four three hours later kind of a thing and so we do do a bunch of old rock and roll blues and rhythm and blues stuff for the last half an hour or 45 minutes and um uh, but that became a you know we did it weekly for five and a half years at nice polonaise room which was kind of the spot we did it on wednesdays and it became the thing to do, and we'd look out. We'd look out. The band got so good. We'd look out at the audience sometimes, and it would be all musicians. <laughs> you know, musicians don't buy T-shirts, and they don't buy records, and they don't even buy tickets. But they come and watch <laughs> <laughs> the band because the band was good. You know, and that was that's kind of saying something. I don't. I don't. It's not like we're. I'm not bragging or anything like that. But the band was. The band was good, and if if. If you have musicians watch, coming to watch you play, then you know that the band is good. Yeah. So when you got into that gig at, at, at Nye's, was that before it became the hipster capital of Minneapolis? That was the week it became the hipster <laughs> well, that's right, capital. Because there was that, um, was it GQ magazine? Esquire. Esquire magazine Esquire. had an article. The, like the week we started, that. it was the coolest bar in America that's on the right. cover of Esquire. Yeah in their best of issue or whatever. So and at that point, I mean, was it like packed It was house packed with people played? that had no no interest in us whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and as soon as that wore off, it was down to 10 people and the bartender, you know, and that didn't take that long to wear off. I want to say a few months, you know, six months or something like that. And then it started to become people just coming to see the band. And then, you know, of course, and then r- random stuff. And then, and then that started to build. In the first couple of years, it was pretty hit and miss. You know, there'd be nights with, if it was shitty weather, there'd be six people there, or sometimes two people, or sometimes just the bartender, Mikey. Wow. Who got his, who got his picture, you know, in Esquire, big, you open the front cover and there's his face right there. And he mm-hmm. was, you know, these, the, the guys that lived above Nyes shared a bathroom and they had been working there for 20 odd years kind of thing. And, um, and Mikey was interesting. He the, the price of the drinks changed all the time. I can t- tell this stuff now because I think he's 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 passed on and okay. Nyes is gone. The real Nyes is gone. But he changed the price of the drinks. The later it got, the more expensive they got, and they were all random. It'd be like if you ordered a whiskey at nine p.m., it might be eight seventy-five, and then if you ordered one at ten thirty, it would be nine dollars and eleven cents. <laughs> And then when you got one at twelve thirty, it'd be ten dollars and seven cents. That kind of a thing, and we just couldn't figure out. But I mean, he took care of us. Uh, but whiskey we couldn't get for free or a deal on beer. We got draft, you know, beer and whatever. But if we had a really busy night, he would slip us some some drinks and stuff like that because he was nice. making good money and everything. 
So were you able to parlay that um, exposure that you got from that from that um, weekly? It was a weekly gig. Every it was a weekly night? gig every Wednesday, five and a half years. So you know? were you able to parlay that into um, other gigs and? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, okay. pe- everybody came. Everybody came down. Uh, the the guy who's the guy with the cooking show, the diners dives thing. He'd be there sometimes. And, oh, okay. You know, uh, Setzer would come down every once in a while, mm-hmm. and uh, but club owners and from other places and book. I mean, it was the it was the cool place to go, musician hangout thing. You know, so so if musicians hang out with booking agents, then booking agents would come down, or if people who booked the clubs and then they'd come down to hang out, and then we'd get other gigs around yeah and then uh nyes so after about four years then it became where it was pretty much packed every wednesday night and it was a thing it was a, it was a big deal and and then the other room had the piano bar in it and that became popular with our fans because they'd go over there after a number of drinks during our breaks we take half an hour break we play for an hour take a half an hour play for an hour take a half an hour and then play for the last half an hour or whatever it was in those half an hour breaks, everybody would go over to the piano bar and sing with, with him, and it was uh, it was so it became a night out. Wednesday mm-hmm. night was a night out, and uh, met a lot of friends, and fans, and a lot of crazy things would happen and stuff. But um, um, then you know, and the people at Nice, the management said, you know, we it was the best consistent night they had every week was. Wednesday night and of course the weekends were busy but as far as the whole night goes you know dinner all the way to two in the morning it was it was good to go for them it was their thing and then so I asked them for a raise and coincidentally they took away our deal on beer and food we had a half off deal on dinner and they took that away instead of giving the raise they said no and they took away our half off dinner deal so I quit I made the band quit. They didn't all want to quit. But I said, we got an offer from a guy who owned this club around the corner called the Astor Cafe. He said, I'll give you more money and free drinks and free dinner every single Wednesday night. And so we got, we said, great. And we stuck our fingers up at Nye's because we were making them money and they weren't helping us out. In fact, they then took away some benefits. And so we moved down to the Astor and we, I think we did that for three and a half years every Wednesday. Until I was finally putting out a record and I was trying to be serious about releasing a record where if I played every week, who's going to come out to my shows? So I quit, which then again, I think some of the band members were upset with me, but whatever. We started doing another monthly show and then we started doing another monthly show at a different place and then I put out a record. As soon as we put out a record, then I started doing a monthly residency at the Ice House. Mm-hmm. And we had our show, which was monthly, called the Real Phonic Radio Hour that was in downtown St. Yeah. Paul at the J.J. Hill Library. That too, yeah. Yeah. So that's how that all kind of worked. So we basically, and that was Wednesday. So it was like eight and a half to nine, eight and a half years, maybe I'm exaggerating, uh, That eight years that we played every Wednesday night. So the first Wednesday we had off. After eight and a half years, I sat at home and just had no idea what to do with myself. <laughs> I was so kind of out of touch with, you know, what to do on a Wednesday night. I, it felt pretty weird. And you had a a studio in Minneapolis. Yeah, you know, in fact, studio. that night, that first Wednesday night, I went down to the studio and I think I wrote this really weird song 
that um, is under a band title that I started with Bernie Larson. We've done three songs in 20 years. Someday we'll get the record done. But um, I wrote this weird song. We made a video of it and put it up on the internet. And I don't think too many people know about it. But okay, yeah. what's the what's the band? It's name? called uh, it's, it's called Saddlebags and Rope. Saddlebags and Rope. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Google that pretty soon here. Yeah, there's like two songs you might be able to find on the internet. Uh, one of them is called Saddlebags and Rope. It's the song, but I decided that would be the name of the band as well. Okay. And uh, Bernie wrote the music for that song, and I wrote the words. And um, then we performed it in the studio together, kind of thing. Okay. That was in 2002 or 2003. That was the first one and then I wrote a song called Come Fill My Cup and that was when I made that and so I think the video on YouTube says Saddlebags and Rope featuring Eric Koskinen and then Bernie came to town from LA and we made a little dumb video for it so not to keep you here all morning no that's fine Uh, sorry I'm the one who's kind of going off in the wrong uh, directions (laughs) let's keep moving here Um, so you, you came to Mankato at some point now what 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 brought you? Well, not well Mankato, I didn't but come to Mankato. Minnesota. Yeah, I came to I came to St. Peter area. St. Peter. Actually, you know, Minnesota. when I first started coming down here, it was actually um, a little house right around the corner from Nakato. So it was actually oh, technically, okay. though I wasn't living down here. I was just coming to visit my uh, my true love, Nicole Helgett. Is that why I came down here? You mean noted author Nicole Helgett? <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Beloved author of the region? Okay. Yes, that's Um, her. That's the one. Um, And we found a farm to live on, and so then she moved out of Mankato, and I moved out of Minneapolis, and we met somewhere in the middle, north of here, a little ways, Mm -hmm. uh, a little farm, and that's where we are. And it's fabulous, except I've been spending my entire February... uh, Removing eight foot snowdrifts and oh, yeah. But the, you know, I like snow removal. I did it for work for a long time. I don't mind it at all. In fact, I kind of quite enjoy sitting in a plow truck with a heater and a radio mm-hmm. in, in, in all hours of the night or day. But I, I, uh, the problem is, is that this year it's every time it gets to be below, you know, fifteen below zero, it, everything has been breaking this year. So oh. it's been a test of patience to get everything to work correctly just so we can get out of the driveway when we're Jeez. in a rush. So it's been it's been a little bit kind of kind of bullshit. Really. It's been it's been a shitty winter. Um well, I, generally I like snow. I'm a skier, you know. I lived in Lake Tahoe for a while. I went to ski if I wasn't a musician, I'd probably still be out in the mountains just being a ski bum or something like that. That yeah. was my life for That'd a while. Be a fun life. Yeah. It was great. I built I built log houses in Lake Tahoe and I skied and was, that would be a fun life. It was great, but yeah. then I kept on getting these phone calls. I mean, the first, the first two times I came back from California, my first gig was at Lee's Liquor Lounge in Minneapolis. Both times, and it was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and I just said that I do this tour like uh, Fargo, St. Cloud, Minneapolis, Duluth, was Madison, you know, all this mm-hmm. stuff, and and then I was just like, I'm, I can't afford to live in Lake Tahoe, California, and yeah. tour the Midwest. So I. Right put my skis in the back of my truck and drove home. Hmm. So one thing um, about your your life here in southern Minnesota is you, you, you bought that studio space in Cleveland. I bought um, the old hardware store in downtown Cleveland, Minnesota, yeah. And it, someone had made it, 
someone had already built a recording studio inside of it. So and I didn't you have to do in. anything. I just hauled my gear from Minneapolis in my truck and put it in there and plugged it in and started making music. Here. One thing I liked about the when you told me that story the first time was um, the first thing you did when you looked at it was you checked out the electrical and made sure everything was sound yeah. as, a, as a piece of property as opposed to a, a piece of studio, you know? Yeah, I wanted to make... Yeah, I wanted to make... Uh, they, I had smart. even gone in the basement. Yeah, they had shored up the old floor... Leveled the old floor and they had all, you know in the basement underneath it and um, they had done all those things that seemed to be the most necessary things. I didn't need an inspector to come in and look at it. I built houses long enough. I think I could figure that out for myself. I inspected it myself. I guess you could say. At the time, though, you you had said you that it you still needed to do some work on it, and um, it's been I don't know if it's been. I'm not sure how many months it's been since we last talked to you about that, but yeah, what I, has changed since then? Have you refurbished anything? I have. It, okay. Well, what happened was I, the front room, there's there's three, there's well, there's four rooms. Well, there's five rooms. There's a basement. Basement's the fifth room. The fourth room's the bathroom. But there's the control room and the tracking room. Oh, there's also a little ISO room as well. So that that's the isolation booth. Uh, but then there's the front room, which is supposed to be kind of like the lounge, you mm-hmm. know? Where the couches and all that kind of stuff, and when you walk in there, it was like walking into an insurance office or a dental office or mm-hmm. something. You know, it's got the brand new uh, carpet from you know Menards or something like that. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're not on the radio; we're on a podcast. Yeah. And drop ceiling, you know, just it just looked like some place you really wouldn't want to hang out, especially musicians, right? And so I kind of pulled back the carpet and found the original wood floor from the original. It was actually called Mims. It was a restaurant, I guess, that stayed open until well after the uh, until after the bars. So you could get a hamburger, I guess, that or the fresh home. All the locals tell me it's the, it was the best, like, fresh, never frozen burgers mm-hmm. after the bar closed kind of place. Which, man, that sounds great yeah, to me. Does. They don't do that. It's hard to find, you yeah, know. Yeah. But um. It was called Mims, so it has the original, but that th- that front room didn't have the floating floor, a raised floor. the The rest of it has a floating floor, so it's uh, sound proof. You yeah. Know? But the, the the front room has the original floor, and so I pulled it. I pulled up the carpet back, and there's the it has yeah this old maple or oak floor, whichever one it is. And then I pulled the drop ce- a couple of the tiles of the drop ceiling out, and I saw a. a about a foot and a half above that was tiles from an old drop ceiling. So then I pulled a couple of those off and found the original paneled wood ceiling still painted in this sort of lime green paint. So I ripped out the ceiling. I ripped out the carpet. I started to sand the ceiling and get it was going to match the paint. And there was a couple of spots. There was some water damage at one point, but they had redone the roof, you know, so that, that was taken care of. But then there was... I started to sand the floor just with a little sander. I wasn't. Gonna, it's not big enough for me to go rent some big sander. So then my mom got cancer, and then that got put on hold. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, she's doing really good right now. So okay. everything's she's she's cancer free at the moment. But so that was. She live in in, in New York. In New York. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I f- I went out there and took her. To the, you know, did some st- mm-hmm. cut a bunch of her firewood for this winter because she wasn't going to be able to do anything, and then 
she lives out in the woods and she still heats with wood and everything. So went out and cut her a bunch of firewood and brought her the her appointments and then she came to Mayo. I got her to come to Mayo for oh. for some procedures and stuff like that. And then she went back to the University of Vermont Medical Center to get her uh, her radiation done. She didn't have to do chemo, thankfully. She just did radiation. And so um, my whole project got on hold, but then I had some recording projects to do for these bands. So I stuffed everything in that front room that was half ripped apart. And right now it's just a storage space. It's <laughs> so you just you just close your eyes when you walk through the front door, and then you get into this control room, and it looks like a recording studio. Okay. But, yeah. Well, good. Does it have a name yet? Did well, you get a name? Casket well, Studios or something? Well, I kind of hummed and drummed about it in my head. You know, I was kind of... I have a little record label called Real Phonic Records, and the old studio was called Real Phonic Studios. So it's always going to be Real Phonic Studios. But I thought maybe the town would like it if I put up this really nice little retro-looking sign called the Cleveland Recording Company or something. I had all these ideas. And then I was like, you know, recording studios don't put their signs outside of their buildings because then people don't know where it is. And so I don't need everybody to know where where it is. So then I decided not... I mean, if you're in Cleveland, you know where it is, of yeah. course. But um, You can call it MIMS. I was. I thought about that. I did actually think about that, I, uh, and I was looking at designs of like some old restaurant style signs that yeah. I could put up there. I was trying trying to find pictures of what the front of Mims looked like before uh, before it became the hardware store. Mm-hmm. It was one of those places where there was a counter. There's it's all glass. It was all glass, but that's all framed in now with wood, and they put this really ugly uh, fake cedar shake siding, vinyl siding yeah. on the outside. So I. That's in a, That's also why I kind of put my project on hold because I want to put a window. There's no window. I want to put a window for that front room. It would mm-hmm. help heat it in the wintertime because yeah. it's the south facing, you know. And then I could uh, put nicer siding on the on the on the thing. But you can see, you can picture it. The doors at the side, and it's got the big, huge. The whole front was glass, and you sit in the counter right there. And, and the back still has the fan, the big fan outlet on cool. from the grill. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So let me get you. Uh just got a few more questions for you here, uh, Eric. Yeah, I'll go um, faster for the, you. <laughs> the, the, the Mankita music scene, um, at, as somebody who has kind of gigged all over the country, um, give me your assessment of the Mankato listeners. Are they are they demanding? Are they are they clueless? You know, I mean. Oh, how, you mean the you mean the musicians the peop- or the or the, the fan the, or the, the 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 participants? The people who come to see you perform. Um, God, they're they're pretty. Uh, They're, they have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, uh, dedicated. Yeah. You know, we play, we've done this once a year. I think we did, I think it was our fourth time this last year, but MSU here has, uh, put on a show with us every year for the last four years at Hooligans in the fall, Mm -hmm. every fall. Yep. And the first time I went to go play at Hooligans, it was, um, uh, we we pull up and it's this mall, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. Well, wasn't that mall built like seventies or six, like sixties or something like yeah. that? It's for that style, you know, of mall. And it's like the idea of playing in a mall is just for a musician is kind of like a it's kind of like against the rules, really. You know? Like 
I got asked to play at the Hard Rock or whatever it was in the Mall of America, and I said, you'd have to give me a lot of money to <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me rent out, sell out for a couple of minutes. You know, we call it renting out. But um, So we, anyway, we pull up to Hooligans in this, this mall, and I'm like, what did I get myself into? So we go in there, and we set up, and it's got this cool stage, and it's got this mm-hmm. dance floor area, and then all these tables, and then it rises up, so people sitting at the tables behind them have a f- good view of the stage, and the place filled up and all of a sudden we're playing and everybody comes out on the dance floor and it, and they danced and it reminded me, which you don't see in Minnesota and Wisconsin, in the upper Midwest very much. You know? And it reminded me of totally of playing in Houston, Texas. It was so great. I had such a great night because it was, people got up when they wanted to dance and they danced and then there's the, the it's actually set up like a Texas kind of hall even, you know, the way it looks in there. So it, quickly became my favorite place around here to play just because of the atmosphere you know mm-hmm. nothing against anywhere else of course but i just it was like i was in a different town really and maybe that it's the one one place where there's that opportunity you know, for people to dance and it feels good so we've done it four years in a row i hope we keep on doing it it's pretty awesome and those people are as far as the fans go are are just super great so how has it been playing with, um, I know you've been sitting in with City Mouse. Yeah, I do sometimes. How's that been going? Uh, it's Legendary Mankato band. Yeah, they're you know, City so Mouse. fun and they're so good. I mean, in fact, the drummer, Mike Pengra, um, he's a, he's such a great, talented guy. You know, he runs Radio Heartland. Um, do you know Radio Heartland? It's this show? No. Uh, it's a radio station from NPR that gets oh, oh, yeah. podcasts all over the world yep, and yep, stuff like that. He does? He runs that whole station. I didn't know that. He does, he's the only guy. He runs the entire thing. He does the he does the show during the morning, and then he you know he writes the set list, and he has to record everything ahead of time, and and uh, he does it's his show. Yeah, I've got that on my phone. And then he also goes out and actually, does like the recording for like a lot of the classical music and stuff. So he he's a super talented. Right, and he's such a good. Dr- the first time I played with him, I was like, you know, this drummer's got a great feel, you know, for, for some, you know, random. Like, they're not random now. I'm just saying, but when I first met these guys, like some blues band in a small town, it's like, oh, these guys got feel, you know, they mm-hmm. uh, they all got a good feel. And so when I've been in a pinch, I've been calling Mike to play drums with me, and he's been great. He's been so he's been a backup drummer. And that's how I met Josh Gravelin, who. I was talking about earlier who's my bass player now mm-hmm. and uh he's got great feel he's a great harmony singer he doesn't play in city mouse but he's connected with all those guys and they put together projects with each other all the time you know? yeah and um billy steiner who you've done a show with here right your yeah. podcast with? yeah he's a great harmonica player great singer he's got some great songs and he's got a heart of gold and okay. i love you know he's got he a does. great attitude yeah. he's a good dude he is a good dude. So who do you listen to when you have free time? And Well, okay, so I will tell you what I was listening to yesterday. <laughs> I was listening. I had free time yesterday. Well, a lot of, a lot of driving around, you know, kind of yep. stuff or whatever. But um, in 1998, I was, in, I was playing a show in Duluth, Minnesota, and I called my dad from my buddy's house. This is, you know, long before. I didn't have a cell phone until 04, I think. And, uh, so I called my dad on the phone, and he he goes, Hey, Eric, you know, there's this guy I just heard on 
NPR interview with, and he reminded me of your music quite a bit. Have you ever heard of this guy named uh, uh, James McMurtry? And I was like, no, no, I haven't. I mean, I've heard, I've seen a name once in a record store, but I've never heard him. And he goes, well, maybe you should check him out. So I didn't, of course, right then. I didn't go out and buy his record or anything like that. But but um, he's this. But I didn't know who he was because his dad was Larry McMurtry, who's the writer who wrote Lonesome Dove and uh, a whole bunch of other shit. Yep. And then year, then a couple of years later, I was playing somewhere, and people started to every once in a while, people would start coming up to me and say, "Man, are you? Do you listen to a lot of James McMurtry?" And I'd be like, "No, I don't." And so then, finally, I think five years after my dad told me the first time that he heard this guy on the radio, I bought a James McMurtry record, <laughs> and. Uh, he's fucking, he's great. Took he's, you five uh, he's years. such yeah, it took me five years. Well that's kinda like when someone says, You should read this book <laughs> five years later yeah. I just finally get to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh but I yeah, it took me about five years. And so I started listening to James McMurtry and I was like, Yeah, you, you know I don't think I don't know what anybody's talking about. I don't sound anything like James McMurtry. And he doesn't sound anything like me. And and but then people were trying to sort of explain, like, well, you, the kind of songs that you write and the delivery. And I was like, okay, but I still don't really see it, you know. But I, lis- I was, so I was listening to his newest record yesterday, driving around, okay. getting some errands done. And it's such a great record. And I do know, I, the longer I listen to him, the more I start to see what people are saying. But I definitely was, I never, I never like, listened to him where I, I did hear his songs from other Texas people singing them, though. So I, I did know of his music. I didn't know even at the time that were his songs necessarily. You know? Okay, like Robert Earl Keen would cover some of him or something like that. You know. Um. So that's what I've been li- I've been li- I've been listening to the last couple of days is the James McMurtry. But I also was listening to this Greg Brown record called Slant Six Mind, which Bo Ramsey um, produced with him, and that's a uh, pretty interesting record late 90s uh red house record red house uh, records release and uh, but um i finally i finally just started listening to my uh the trample by turtles new record i mm-hmm. i hadn't had a copy of it and we did a show with them in in uh at lutzen right around new year's and um i finally got a copy of the new record cause <laughs> I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't buy one. I mean, I should have bought one, but I didn't buy one. They gave me one, but it took me a long time to get it because I hadn't seen them for a while. And and then it took me until this week to listen to it because I've just been busy. You know. Well, I was on vinyl. I kind of just drive around. And, you know, I have to sit and listen to it. Right. You know, so I finally sat and listened to it, and I texted Dave and said it sounded great, which it does. I really like it. It sounds like a Trampled by Turtles record. They all do, but this one sounds kind of like the one I recorded for them. Okay. It kind of, they started to explore a little bit beyond <coughs> whatever, beyond their kind of normal thing, which is great. I think all musicians should be growing at all times. You know? And then this record kind of, then we did the Dead Man Winter record. Trampled yep. went on hiatus. And then when Trampled came back, they kind of, kind of went back and did a record that sort of sounded like uh, earlier trampled, okay, but with uh, smarter songs and 
more experienced living songwriting kind of you know Interesting. life has you know 10 years later yeah the uh, aftermath of yeah. life <laughs> even though you're still in the middle of it so it's not really the aftermath i guess yeah. and uh better musicianship i mean those guys have always been great i'm not i'm just saying it's it's just it's actually they're always getting better it's they're always getting better yeah good yep. so um we're almost going to wrap it up here but I, sorry one, one thing that you that you do that uh, i I find really interesting is, I mean, I'm not sure if you're still doing this, but you used to build houses. I did used to build houses, yep. And I love building houses. Do you do that kind of work at all anymore? I mean, do you well, I do some. Side or? I did. Just uh, to stay busy? I did one. I built one house since I moved down here, yeah. It was in Minneapolis. It was a million-dollar house, like fancy, like all square, hipstery kind of big crazy house this guy asked me to build it with him and so uh, when you when you say you can build a house let me i want to like are you like the general contractor or are you like hands-on no i'm hands-on hammer and nails okay i mean i could do it i could be the general contractor i think you know i mean i i understand how it all works and i understand who you have to call first and who you have to call last and mm-hmm. you know who, who you have to call in the middle to get certain things done but we did a lot of the stuff ourselves so we pulled the wiring um, we didn't, we didn't, uh, you know, we had to have an electrician like finish right. it and inspect right. and have it inspected and everything like that. Right. But we, we could pull the wire, we could run plumbing line, but we had to have a plumber finish hooking up the, we had to have someone come and do the main like mechanical heating, okay. uh, heating, uh, like HVAC stuff and everything. We couldn't, but do as that. far as just the building, the bedrooms, yeah, we framed, the, framed the house. The oh yeah. We, we start from the, from the foundation and go up. We have someone come and do the foundation and then we lay the first day is basically putting the trusses down, and then you put the floor on, and then the next day you start building the first story walls, mm-hmm. or the next day, or the next couple of days, whatever it takes. You know? And um, but the amazing thing about building houses is you can, like a small one-story house, you can almost frame it in a day. You can get it done. You know, you can get the whole f- first floor. If you got enough guy, you get the first floor done and a couple of walls up in a day. And you look, you go out to the truck and you turn back around and you saw that you had built. A house, half a house in a day, you know? All right, it's not a half a house, but it's half the structure. It's half the frame of the building. So then the next day you go there and you finish the the walls. And then the, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever day it ends up being, you put the roof on. You know? If it's not a big house, it doesn't take that long. And uh, if you are doing everything yourself, then you shingle it. I hate shingling roofs, though. It's really hard on my knees and... Mm. And uh, it's bore it's it's boring and and makes you hurt, you know. So I <laughs> I never did I never wanted to roof anything, uh, which usually we'd get a roofing crew to because they're faster and better and you know all that kind of stuff. But uh, we put the doors that you know after you frame it in and get the roof on, you put the doors and the windows in. And if you're a framing crew, then you just move on to the next house. But if we we but we did this whole house, so then we started doing sheetrock and the right trim uh i'm a horrible i'm a, i can hang sheetrock like anybody but i can't mud for okay <laughs> and the the <laughs> i can, then the sheetrock mud that's the artistic part you okay. know that's the that's the that is yeah that's like painting or molding or whatever you gotcha. know um it's like doing clay work or something you know anyway and so i never did that but then i, <clears> I did the like i can i w- do some of the trim work and the exterior this all the siding and then the, you build the porch or the deck, and then you know you put the garage in or whatever you know, just whatever. Yeah, 
I loved it because you see this progress. Every day you see this progress. Mm-hmm. It's like mowing the lawn. You get done with mowing the lawn, you look at it and it's all fresh and it smells good and you can you can see, you know, you can see this whole lawn looks good, you know, kind of like a fresh baseball diamond or something yeah. like that, you know. Um but when you do certain kind of jobs, you don't see that progress and it you just like roofing is like I mean, I guess you can see that the roof is roofed, but it's <laughs> It's not like this thing, you know. Right, right. For me, right. I mean, maybe there's some roofers that feel that way. You know, but Any roofers out there, uh, he means no disrespect to you. None work, whatsoever. <laughs> In fact, I have the greatest respect for them because it's so hard of a job it. for me, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I got these bad, I, I do have kind of bad knees. And so being on your knees all day long, it's just, I can barely see, get out work. of the, it is. And you can barely get out of the truck when you get home, you know, after you sit, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. So. so musically, what is coming up? For you, you have any gigs coming up? You have any albums coming well, up? Well, you know what I think we're gonna do is I think we're gonna do the rest of the Wednesdays at uh, in March at the Nikado. Are you gonna keep doing that? I think yes. we're gonna do it for March. Yeah, I'm, uh, we uh, we couldn't do it last week, so I didn't tell anybody. But I'm gonna, I think I'm actually gonna announce it later. Okay. Um. Uh, so yeah. Any albums coming out? You have anything in the works? I have a new album coming out in June. Yep. Okay. And you can look for that. Yeah. Um, trying to figure out the CD release, the oh, the album release show yet. Uh, we were supposed to; it was supposed to be June first at the Turf Club, which I think we're still doing that date. Um, but I don't think it's the album release show anymore because I think it had to get pushed back to the end of June. Okay, because we're doing it the uh, music business way now. We have a publicist out of New York and oh. and a radio person from Nashville, and now they're all telling us how we're supposed to do it. So. Hopefully, and you're listening. I'm listening. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, good I'm luck. I'm supposed with that. to be listening. Thanks. Good luck yeah. with that. So I got some weird questions for you. Sure. We usually wrap up the podcast with um, bizarre questions. Fine. That I'm going to throw at you, um, and you can. I, I, can I opt out of them if I have to? Some people have opted out of them. <laughs> okay. They just, they're pretty weird, but um, anyway, here's the first one. Would you rather lose the ability to lie or believe everything you're told? Um, say that one more time for me. Would you rather lose the ability to lie? So totally lose the ability lie. to lie. Totally, or believe everything you're told. No, definitely lose the ability to lie. Okay, yeah. all right. Would you rather experience the beginning of planet Earth or the end of planet Earth? The end. Why? Because the beginning sounds like you wouldn't be able to survive. I mean, what is the begin? What is the beginning? I guess that'd be the Big Bang. I don't know. I mean, I'd get eaten by a dinosaur or something. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's like, it sounds, <laughs> okay. we didn't know how to communicate very well with each other at that true, point in time. I, th- I think that trying to survive is the idea of humans all the time anyway. So the end. Okay. Would you rather have no one show up for your wedding or your funeral? Oh, all of the above. I mean... Uh, you'd, have, you'd have nobody show up to either of them. Well, I, you know, I like the small little weddings. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that um, aren't don't cost twenty thousand dollars, right? You know? And <clears throat> the idea of a bunch of people sitting around mourning people who die doesn't excite me very so, much. So you wouldn't see like nobody showing up as nobody cared. <laughs> No. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I mean, 
here's the deal. Everybody dies. So the fact that every single time somebody dies, we act surprised and sad is kind of... But haven't you ever had that thought about, hey, what, if I die today, who would show up? Haven't you ever thought about that? Uh, maybe in some roundabout way, not directly, but... Um, I think some, you know, some friends would show up, I'm sure, and some family members and stuff like that. But I I always grew up with, my dad was the kind of person that, he's like, if I'm on my deathbed and you come and waste your time trying to take care of me, I'm going to whip my cane at you and tell you to (laughs) get the hell, go do something with yourself and don't sit around here, waste Mm -hmm. your time. Um, So that's kind of always been the philosophy at my house. It's not... uh, big celebrations for gotcha. you know birthdays we don't make a big deal about birthdays i mean we do for the kids and all you know kids get birthdays it's fun you know that kind of thing but adults i mean i agree I, with you yeah. okay uh would you rather live in an amusement park or a zoo a zoo but they're kind of similar aren't they <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the human race is a zoo-ish kind of. That's like, true. You know, it's like, That's true. Uh, I think a zoo. I like animals. I mean, what? Who are? It, it, I guess it depends on. I mean, if they're all predators and I'm running for my life the whole time, maybe I'd rather live in the amusement park. Well, I mean, if they're caged, I think you're probably safe from that. Yeah, but if it's like, yeah, if I'm safe from the constant. It's like the other question you asked. Do I want to live at the beginning of the world? When the you know, because at the beginning, you'd be running from things like you know, dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But if you, if you, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it just depends on the circumstances. So maybe the amusement park. It depends on what's at the amusement. <laughs> you know, is there I a swimming pool? I mean, if you're if you're 12, you definitely want that amusement park, right? Absolutely. I mean, because you know the animals are going to get old, but if they don't get, but you become friends 40, with the animals when you're older, you know. If you're forty, I mean, how much fun can you really have on another roller coaster ride? But no, in animals. fact, I'm completely afraid of roller coaster rides, so I wouldn't oh, go on them anyway. I hate, okay. I hate roller coaster rides. Would you rather skinny dip with your classmate or a stranger, like a friend or a stranger? Is this the opposite sex or the same sex? Let's try opposite. A friend? I think that's that's like what spirit. kind of friend? Like a friend with benefits or a I'm just saying somebody you already know. Hmm. I'm just gonna go with stranger at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Um, okay. Um Eric, thanks a lot. That's gonna do it for this episode of Freebcast. Um <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh it's been a it's been a blast. Thanks for okay. coming in. Always good talking to you. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I talked so much that we didn't get everything we didn't get everywhere we wanted to go so if you need to you know uh, ask me to come back again I don't live very far so. sounds good um, thanks again for coming and thanks to uh, KMSU for letting us record here and thanks to uh, the band Goodnight Gold does for letting us use your song Headlights for our theme music uh, we'll see you next time